And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. Whatever the case may be, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Um, we're going to be leading tonight with a story related to COVID-19, because that's going to be part of a very intriguing and extraordinary conversation I'm going to have with our guest later in the morning. Uh, Richard Grossinger has what I would perceivably call a transcendental view of the COVID pandemic and the planet and the world and past and future and where are we and who are we. In other words, it's going to be, it's not going to be what you've ever heard before on this subject, I guarantee you, which is why we have actually published in his uh, section of Radio with Pictures an essay he did, a kind of a loose journal of thoughts and observations and analyses that was in real time posted on Facebook um, uh, a little over a year ago. And uh, it is so good that we put it on the other side of midnight tonight because I, I it's long. I must warn you, it's very long, but it has some really interesting ideas, some of which I embrace, some of which I will question, and some of which I find, well, you'll hear. Anyway, um, before we get to Richard, let me do some news items. Number one, apropos of what I was just saying, as you may have noticed if you're watching or perusing or following mainstream culture and news, the modality of how did this virus come about has shifted. The pendulum has swung. Now there is a very strong groundswell for the idea, ultimately, that this thing leaked out of the lab there in Wuhan. And, of course, Chinese vigorously claim that's all nonsense, and uh, the subject has been intensely politicized over the last year. Uh, you know that uh, Dr. Wick Singh and I have a very different model. We think it came from outer space. And uh, Chandra thinks it came naturally as part of an extraordinary panoply of experiments and observations he has done with colleagues like um, Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle, going back into the 50s and the discovery in their observations that life itself is permeating the interstellar clouds of this galaxy. And now, of course, we can observe interstellar clouds in millions of other galaxies. And the signature, which uh, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh found many, many decades ago, is there in the interstellar medium. It was found by a, an astronomer at Lick back in the 30s called Trumpler, a name that uh, has not been mentioned in astronomy circles for some time. Anyway, um, if you want to kind of follow that conversation, there are several shows that I've done with Chandra. Just look in the Club 19.5 archive. That's your advantage as members. And you might want to replay those again because they're... You know, it's not one of those either-or things. Both could be true. This thing could have come from space. Uh, there's a robust body of data that there are periodic episodes of infection and pandemics on the planet, and they are correlated in the Hoyle-Wickrama-Singh model with when we transit interplanetary clouds of dust from comets. And uh, Chandra is of the opinion that I am that there is current burgeoning life bustling inside comets, that they're not, you know, ancient 
blocks of ice permeated by little specks of silicates. They're much, 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 much more interesting. And they have draped the solar system, particularly the inner solar system, in effluvia that contains microbes, that contains living things, DNA, etc., etc., and, drumroll, viruses. So it's very possible in a very squeaky clean mainstream model, even if the mainstream hasn't accepted it yet. Uh, in fact, it, it's looking more and more like this model has been suppressed as so many interesting scientific discoveries have been ruthlessly suppressed over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Um, if and when this is appreciated, an outer space origin for COVID-19 is certainly should certainly be on the boards for investigation. It's not there yet. We've moved from it came from a bat through an intermediary animal to that market in Wuhan, the so-called wet market, what a name, to it may have leaked out of the lab in Wuhan um, because they were experimenting with uh, doing things to these viruses that are found I guess this particular strain is found in bats, and only in bats. Um, they were doing what is called gain of function. Gosh, all the new terms we're learning. Gain of function means you take something natural into a laboratory and you work to turn it into a weapon. You want to make it more virulent. You want to make it more dangerous. You want to make it more lethal. You want to make it more. So you want to gain on the function of its natural proclivities in the wild. And, of course, like the old haystack joke, there are two ways of looking at that. One is, if there are bad guys on the planet and they're going to be doing this anyway, we need to be doing this, meaning the U.S., meaning the U.S. government, in order to figure out how to stop what they're doing when they do it. Follow that? That's the benign theory. The less benign theory is that, like all other nations, we are and have been actively conducting uh, bio-warfare research, which even though the treaties are in place and we're supposed to have destroyed our stockpiles, etc., this research is going on sub rosa, regardless, because not everybody is a, you know, a, a player that operates via the Geneva Convention. So in the case that they use bioweapons, we will have bioweapons. It's kind of a biomad you know, equivalency to the nuclear, you know, mutual assured destruction, the MAD doctrine, which has um, prevailed since the end of World War II. All of that aside, what's interesting is that there are more serious people, both scientists, political people, journalists, the general public, who are looking seriously at the it escaped from Wuhan model. Then, of course, you get to the finer level where were the Chinese developing this as a bioweapon, or were they the recipients of funds from the U.S. government by way of kind of outsourcing this research, which technically is restricted and prohibited by the treaty on U.S. soil, but if you just send money and someone else does... In other words, I'm not aware, and we we'll, may find out during the morning, <clears throat> whether the Chinese were ever signers of the um, uh, you know, treaty against uh, biological warfare. I do not know. And it would be an interesting loophole if they were not, given that they did not have the capabilities 
when the treaty was constructed to be part of a biowarfare uh, strategic plan. It would be interesting to see if this money that was sent from the U.S. government to China to do gain of function on these viruses, coronaviruses, if in fact it was to escape the letter of the law. If that's true, one should in a fair and just universe, and people should be fired and maybe even brought up on on some kind of war crimes, because if you abrogate an international treaty by trying to secretly circumvent it, there should be consequences. Anyway, we're still we're going to talk about COVID-19 tonight in part from a very, very, very interesting set of different perspectives. I guarantee you different than you have ever heard on either of the shows that we put on the air before. Which brings me to item number two. Now, this is something that my guest tonight has no clue about because it has not been widely talked about in the media. In fact, it hasn't been talked about at all. It is the subject of our own publication here, as well as a paper co-authored by three scientists um, out of the University of Chicago, two of whom are off, off, uh, uh, off the coast, you know, uh, one in Israel and I think one in England. And it has not been widely picked up by the uh, academic community. In fact, it kind of sank into a academic black hole, which I find interesting. And this is what it is. It's, it's item number two. It's, it's that graph, which, by the way, truncates at November 7th of 2020, because that's when the folks publishing these graphs, obviously, because we talked about it a lot on this show, uh, got wind of the fact that, oh, my God, they were releasing too much data. So you cannot find a daily death count for any country or the world anywhere on the web that I have looked. And if someone can correct me if I'm wrong about that, I will be very gleeful because I'd like to see how this trend extended from March 11th, which is when you know the World Health Organization declared the pandemic, to... Um, where our data ends November 7th of 2020. Actually, of course, the pandemic is still going on. So there should be records somewhere compiled as this graph was from the European equivalent of the CDC. I, politi- I politically yeah, I politically and deliberately eschewed our own CDC because of the political tampering with it in those months. So we went to the Europeans and what they would do is they would collate data from all over the world, something like 195 countries submitting daily statistics as to the number of people dying and the number of people dying from COVID-19. And what I've said many times before, given that there has been the accusation that all these numbers have been cooked and an awful lot of people dying of, quote, ordinary causes were billed to COVID-19 really because they were billed to COVID-19. Well, that only applies in the U.S. It doesn't apply around the rest of the world. There were no bonuses offered for people dying of COVID versus anything else and no supplementals and no uh, none, none of the stuff that went on here. Um, so that data should be cleaner. It should be purer. What was extraordinary, oh, someone's saying to me, not true. Well, see, if you think the whole system is rigged, then you need to get into another system because there's no way to ever figure it out. And I have the mindset that with science, you can figure anything out, but you have to have a process. Anyway, that graph you see up there is a compilation through the European CDC 
of worldwide deaths from March of 2020 through November of 2020, November 7th. And the stunning factor, the factor that to me is mind-boggling and is the most important legacy, bar all others, of COVID-19, is that that graph depicts that worldwide, in synchronization, every seven days, regardless of culture, religion, political system, timekeeping system, calendrical system, whatever, the number of deaths rose and fell in a rhythmic period of exactly seven days. Seven plus seven plus seven plus seven plus seven relentlessly. And then, of course, they cut off the graphs because somebody does not want us to know that worldwide deaths attributed to COVID-19 have been you know, accumulating and be modulating on this seven-day frequency. Now, just for the sake of argument, let's just imagine that the kind of, of, of corruption and level of dissembling and dissemination of false truths and all that is of the magnitude that people who think this whole thing is a scandemic anyway uh, have been saying. Let's just for a moment for the argument say that's true. Why, if you're commingling deaths from everything else with the COVID-19 deaths, do you still come out with the seven-day frequency? Seven and seven and seven. To me, this portends an astonishing and testable scientific hypothesis that regardless of what people die of, the virus notwithstanding, it's almost irrelevant, the only reason we're measuring it is because of the politics of COVID-19. These stats should be there in the record all over the world if someone had the money to put them all together, regardless of COVID, before COVID, you know, decades before COVID, going back to when the first statistics of death were kept anywhere on Earth. If I'm right, if this is really the modulation of life and death on Earth by a seven-day, seven-spin of the planet, solar spin, not sidereal, but relative to the sun, if that seven solar day sun-centered um, modulation is correct, it modulates life and death all over the world simultaneously. And it probably, if it's that large, applies not just to human beings, but to the life and death of all creatures on Earth. There should be max and minima separated by seven days relentlessly in all biomes down through history that has never been appreciated because no one had the resources until the world panicked over COVID-19 to assemble these statistics and put them all together and accessible on something called the Internet. I mean, if this is true, this is so phenomenally important. And that's why I'm really intrigued that the one academic paper that came out on this, separate from our own work, out of the University of Chicago, seems to have disappeared like tossing a stone into the Atlantic Ocean. There's been no repercussion, no discussion, no critique, no, oh, it's another conspiracy, no assailing the credentials or the backgrounds of the scientists involved. 
nothing. It just kind of disappeared into that vast cosmic sea of anonymity, which to me is really important because it means, and the, and the simultaneity of this with the cutting off of the daily death data from around the world, oh, we don't need it anymore? Yeah, right. The pandemic's still going on. Most of the world is still suffering. You know, the number of people who've been vaccinated from country to country varies radically, wildly. And it's marching on even if we here domestically are not seeing, you know, the effects. That graph you see in number two, I think is the most stunningly important datum from the whole COVID experience. And I look forward to talking with Richard about what he thinks it might mean. Moving on to number three. Um, while all this has been going on, remember a few weeks ago, the Chinese landed on Mars. And then they disappeared. I mean, really. They landed all, about three weeks ago on Friday, Saturday their time. And then a day or two later, they rolled down the ramp and the rover touched wheels on the soil of Utopia Planitia on the planet Mars, having rolled down from the Chinese uh, lander. And the little rover is called uh, uh, Zhurong, which is the name of the Chinese fire god. Anyway, that's the last images, all, by the way, in black and white, except for one close-up of the solar panels that we got from the Chinese, and that was three weeks ago. There had been no press conferences, there had been no leaks, there has been no back-channel information, nothing like the Chinese experience and then the rest of the world experience with the Chinese unmanned landings on the moon. Chang-3, Chang-4, and Chang-5. Chang, by the way, is the Chinese goddess of the moon. With her pet rabbit, Yu-2, which, of course, the rover that was landed on the Chang-3 and Chang-4 missions had U-2-1 and U-2-2. And uh, number one fared okay for several days, and then its wheels got tangled in something, and it came to a stop. However, it still was able to transmit images, wonderful, glorious color images, which, in fact, demonstrated with different technology 40 years after the Apollo missions, um, and a totally antithetical political system to the United States, circa NASA, circa 1969 to the 70s during the heyday of Apollo, it showed exactly the same extraordinary glass ruins extending above the horizon. And we've done past programs on this, and I won't bore you with that. Now, if you look carefully at that, at that image on item number uh, three... That's an official Chinese poster where before the launch they had positioned their artwork, or actually I think it's a scale model, of their lander-rover combination on a backdrop which is not artistic. It's actually a surface image um, from NASA stolen from the Curiosity mission because in the background uh, of the uh, lander, the, the Chinese lander, there is this obvious ancient eroded arcology on Mars at Gale Crater. And we've had Andrew Curry do side-by-side uh, -side comparisons. Well, that kind of tipped us off that the intention of the Chinese when they got to Mars was to basically blow the whistle on ancient 
Martian ruins by where they landed. Then they land and they disappear. First of all, before they disappear, they keep giving us black and white images. They don't give us color like they did on the moon. They don't give us color panoramas like they did on the moon. They don't even give us a static shot, you know, one shot of the horizon from a lander or the rover. They give us nothing but black and white images, two or three, and then they go dark. Literally, nothing has been coming from the surface of the Chinese mission on Mars for three whole weeks. Nothing. And what I find interesting is that the patience of the um, space community, the folks that, you know, kind of haunt the blogs and the uh, various leaks and the various Twitter accounts that follow the Chinese, they're all so incredibly patient. It's like, well, they're having communication problems or, oh, maybe their rover, you know, died or, in other words, everything but the real answer, which is the Chinese, for some reason, in violent contradiction to their previous behavior with the moon, where they bragged and bragged and bragged and stuffed it down our throats that they were so successful, even including the far mission to the far side, they have said and posted nothing. Now, why is that important? Well, we'll get into that when we get uh, Dr. Groschinger on, because I think a lot of it has to do with the real environment of Mars, the real atmosphere, the real colors of the sky, the real, you know, neighborhood. And why would they be so silent? I mean, is it possible that NASA really, you know, flummoxed the world and laid out a fake Mars to where the Chinese fell into the trap? And when they finally got down and found it wasn't the way NASA's been claiming all these years at all, they have nothing to do but be silent? Or is their silence somehow connected to item number one, the fact that the COVID-19 originated in a lab in Wuhan? In other words, as the Trump side has been saying, China was responsible for this horrible thing. All In other words, is <clears throat> that been raised by the deep state intelligence community as a way of holding China in check regarding publishing what's really on the planet Mars. We shall see. Which grades directly into item number four in my in my Radio with Pictures section, because tonight, among other things we're going to talk about with Richard, we're going to talk, as we discussed last night, with this extraordinary move of UFO sightings and discussion and history and background from the fringe the weirdos, the fanatics, the fanboys, into the mainstream. With two major competing papers, the New York Times and the Wolf and the uh, Washington Post, now in direct competition for who can dig out the deepest, most important stories relating to UFOs. Renamed, of course. You can't really do that. UAPs. But I'm, I guarantee you, UAPs is not going to stick. UFOs is going to stick because it's become synonymous in the public mind with UFOs equal ETs equal the other. Some outside intelligence brushing up against ours for many, many, many decades to which governments uniformly have said, nothing here, move along, move along, nothing here. Which brings me to item number five. 
In the midst of all this, remember, Musk just got, Elon Musk, you know, SpaceX just got the uh, sole source contract from NASA to develop the lunar lander, part of the Artemis program. Um, in other words, he's going to build his rocket ships with federal money to be part of the Artemis uh, much more complex program of, you know, huge rocket, Orion spacecraft, gateway, lunar landers. Well, he gets to build or, or to, shall we say, uh, provide his spacecraft, his Starship spacecraft, as the lunar lander. And then, of course, there were big objections from the other two companies that lost the bid, uh, Bezos, and I forget what the other group is. They're out of West Virginia. And we'll see how that comes down in the, in the, with the Government Accountability Office. But what, what this presages, and the, one of the reasons this is part of tonight's conversation, is because the claim has been that SpaceX was, was having a technical problem with building enough engines to fulfill its contract with NASA vis-a-vis Artemis. And that story basically says, uh, according to Musk, that they're building a rocket engine every 48 hours, which would more, more than keep enough in the bank to supply NASA's needs besides their own. But this opens up a larger set of implications. Because if you have private space groups, organizations, corporations, with the proven dexterity and technical excellence of SpaceX, it means that space itself, the moon, Mars, the solar system, is not going to be privy for much longer to the private machinations of nation-states, of governments. In fact, it's going to be a free-for-all with lots and lots of private enterprise and private missions and private eyes looking at everything out there, beginning with the moon, and it will be unstoppable. Is this part of the reason for the sudden move toward disclosure of UFOs? Is this part of the reason why someone is pressuring the Chinese government to, for God's sake, don't tell them what's really on Mars so they go dark for three weeks? In other words, are we in the midst of an extraordinary, absolutely mind-boggling revolution, which in fact encompasses not only the moon, but Mars, and much and everything beyond. Um, I'm going to have a very interesting conversation with our uh, good friend, uh, Richard Grossinger. In fact, let me give you a little preview. The reason, one of the reasons that I'm having Richard on tonight is because we're kind of entering phase two of an experiment and adventure that we both embarked on decades ago, back in the 1980s, when I published my first kind of magnum opus on extraterrestrial archaeology, The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever. And the publisher and the publisher's company that chose out of all the gin joints that I had gone to, to actually publish this document was none other than North Atlantic Books and his publisher, Dr. Richard Grossinger. I'm not quite sure then what he saw in this work, and I'm not quite sure now what he has seen 
of its extraordinary advances on many fronts, or the interlocking tentacles, that's an inside joke, uh, to all the other things we're going to talk about tonight. But we're going to find out right after we take a short break for our usual top and bottom of the hour, you know, interludes on the other side of midnight. And so without further ado, and with the dulcet tones of Elton John in the background, talking about my favorite planet, you are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. As a kite by then I miss the earth so much I miss my wife It's lonely out in space On such a time I flight the Green Revolution 2.0 is called Gates Ag 1 and it's highly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates. The mission statement is all about how we must accelerate the deployment of new technologies to indigenous farmers and it's going to help them with climate change, right? It all, again, it all ties back to that. And we must go in and take their heirloom genetics away from them, right? These, these precious, uh, hardy, resilient seeds that have fed those people in various parts of the world for generations, for, for hundreds of generations in some cases, and replace them instead with newly genetically engineered, CRISPR modified, bastardized. That's why I say they're defiling the food supply. Ag tech, as it's called. And so this is why we now need to introduce the idea of a acute food crisis. And I would suggest that they have engineered and we're staring right now down the barrel of this is the, the urgency in tonight's conversation uh, of an engineered food shortage. And they will use this food shortage, which you're starting to see now around the world, especially as the big bread baskets have started to experience crop failures. And they're shutting down their exports of grains, corn and soybean prices are rising precipitously. That means that the countries that depend on those exports, the net importers, are all already experiencing food crises. And so this is spreading around the world right now. And what will happen as we, you know, as we get through this is 
you'll see the media and these think tanks and the UN, all these, all these players will point at the problem. It's just the Hegelian dialectic again, right? They'll say, now you see, because of climate change, this mm-hmm. is why we're having these food shortages and of course the pandemic. And this is why, this is why we have to move into indoor vertical farms and lab-grown meat. And this, you, there's no option. Now, now you feel the pain and now you see why we've been doing this. We've had your interests at heart the whole time. We're from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> right? So there, there's an acute crisis situation that we're now walking into. And that will be used to bring all of this nasty technology in. This is Christian Westbrook with the Ice Age Farmer, and you're listening to the other side of the news. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, January, January, June 6, 2021. Actually, in 1944, on this date, an extraordinary event happened in modern history. It was the D-Day invasion, and uh, my friend uh, Robert Morningstar, on his show uh, a day or two ago, maybe yesterday, did a very elegant uh, appreciation of the greatest generation, my father was a member of the greatest generation and they saved the world from fascism and nazism and variants thereof and there seems to be a need once again to save the world from those same things except now they have little different forms and they don't come at you directly and they have confused so many people in so many places which of course is why In my perception, it is really the only thing that can save us. Space, the final frontier, the identity of who we really are and how close we are related compared to who and what is out there.
Well, let me give my guest of the morning a proper introduction because Richard is much, much more than just uh, my former publisher. Let me get the right screen up here. He has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan. He is the former publisher of North Atlantic Books, the author of several of his own books, including Dark Pool of Light, Reality, and Consciousness, The Night Sky, Soul and Cosmos, and Bottoming Out the Universe. He currently lives in Portland, Maine, and then sometimes he lives in Berkeley, California, which of course is where I met him because I also lived in Berkeley. Actually, he was kind of north, north, north Oakland. Uh, Grosjean's writing can be divided into three overlapping categories. <clears throat> General experimental prose. Uh, you're going to you know, dip into the COVID-19 thing tonight, and you're going to be pleasantly, pleasantly rewarded. Books on topics in science viewed historically, cross-culturally, epistemologically, esoterically, and in terms of pop culture, and autobiographical memoirs. All the works arise through a literary sensibility. During the 70s, uh, Richard read and spoke at a number of institutions, including the University of California in Santa Cruz, SUNY at New Plots, Franconia College, Kent State, the Chicago Poetry Festival, West Virginia University, Kaiser State, St. Mark's Church, it goes on and on. Grossinger has also studied Tero, Tai Chi, Hinsing One, Craniosacral Therapy, Qigong, Dream Work, Bioenergetic Therapy, Lomi Work, Gestalt Movement Work, Brima Classes, and Yoga. And more recently attended Psychic Kindergarten at the Berkeley Psychic Institute, and then continued his psychic studies from there. He's currently coordinating a psychic group seasonally when he is in Maine. And without further ado, Richard, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Well, we've been going for quite a while. There's so much to gather up, and uh, I don't know really quite where to begin. <laughs> that was my well, question. Uh, like, where, with this incredible smorgasbord? Well, begin, uh, well, first of all, I think you read um, a, uh, a biography from about 20 years ago. I'm not, not quite, I mean, these things stay around, so... Um, but whatever, uh, it's a little bit out of date, but I actually live in Bar Harbor, Maine now. Okay. Don't, don't live part-time in Berkeley. But I did meet Richard in Berkeley in the mid-'80s, and that's more interesting to deal with than my biography. <laughs> um, and there, uh, I actually met him at the moment at which I Rodin had published. Yeah, he, of uh, course, is not here. So he's being referred to in the third person. <laughs> what? Um, uh, I met Richard um, because I read an article in the newspaper in the San Francisco Chronicle about his work with Mars. And I had just published a book on kind of astronomy, astrology. That was the night sky book. Soul in the Cosmos. Yeah, the original, the original version of it before it was subtitled Soul and Cosmos. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I thought, well, this guy turned out to live only a handful of blocks from me. And so we began talking and we got together. And eventually I discovered 
he needed somebody to help him with publishing that book. And so it happened. But now that we're, what, 35 years later, is, I, is that the quick math correct? Good um, grief, how time does fly. Um, now that we're that much later, I kind of reflect back. Richard asked the question, what did I see in it? Of course, that's false modesty because it was um, a kind of brown, groundbreaking book at the time. Whatever you think about the mo monuments on Mars, the face on Mars, Sidonia, and so forth, um, he, by raising the questions that he did at the time, he started many, many separate discussions and layers and levels of discussion, which have matured over the years and gone down different trails. And all of that could be felt almost hauntingly in, in his writing then. Um, and the book was a haunting book and it, it it's hard to even know what genre it was. It was <laughs> speculative science. It was science fiction. It was um, extraterrestrial kind of, archaeology. That's all. And it was extra okay, extraterrestrial archaeology. But Richard and I check in at various distances. Sometimes a decade passes. Sometimes only a year or part of a year. But we have checked in over time. And in visiting with him tonight him in New Mexico and me in Maine, um, I, was, uh, I was musing about what, what is really exceptional about his work. Um, and so I told him I wanted to give my view of that um, <laughs> because I've really, it's the only way I can kind of get located in this discussion um, because Richard builds up a head of steam and momentum and throws so many curves at you all at once that you barely can start down one before the next one comes. So I'd like to kind of cut through some of that and just say that here are the things that really kind of stand out long term. Um, number one, I I don't think it's... Whatever Richard thinks, and he can speak for himself, I don't think the Mar all, all these issues will be finally resolved in our lifetimes, nor do I think that that's really what his achievement is, whether the relative truth or ver veridicality of any one thing. I think when he started with Monuments of Mars, when you started with Monuments of Mars, Richard, to not talk about you in the oh, third Oh, hi there. Place. Yes, yes, I'm right over here. When you started on Monuments of Mars, what you did, which was unique, was to look really closely at another planet um, and ask questions that nobody was asking. And... The people who weren't asking the questions were exactly the people who were supposed to be asking those sorts of questions. And you cut through all that and posed alternate narratives um, that came from extremely close observation of, um, of an, another planet's surface, the kind of observation that just wasn't being done. 
Instead, what you had were people projecting um, their kind of, uh, they were projecting their image based on what they either presumed that they would find or what it looked like on Earth or one thing or another. And you, you went a totally different route and said, let's really look at this from the standpoint of another paradigm, um, the possible habitation of Mars, and then later the um, possibility of different kinds of energy fields and planetary cataclysms and so forth. Now, some people may think that's um, valid, and other people may think that it's completely um, fabricated and um, and full and and like just inflated out of nothing. And it, it, to me, it doesn't matter at all either way because it's not going to be resolved uh, definitively. Oh, let me interrupt but, you. <clears throat> yes, it will be. <clears throat> and long before you and I shuffle off this mortal coil, the rate of the increase of accessibility of the solar system to ordinary people, I go back to my news item on Musk, is asymptotic. It is going through the roof. It's, it even exceeds the, uh, the rate at which this uh, <clears throat> mRNA um, uh, you know, virus uh, modality was, was invented in kind of like a year with a 17-year you know, lead time. The point is accessibility, cheap accessibility to the solar system is going to make it possible for ordinary folks, beginning with the moon, to verify everything I've ever claimed. And, of course, the physics itself, which is a separate thing that has to be done in laboratories. I mean, there's a very famous guy. He used to be head of the astronomy department at Harvard. His name is uh, Abby Loeb, and he's written a book, a whole book, on the extraterrestrial archaeology of Oumuamua, this first singular mm -hmm. object that came into the solar system clearly on an interstellar trajectory, whipped around the sun, then left never to return. And he and I are only one of two people, two of two people, who have looked at this data and said, oh my God, this thing was artificial. The thing that Loeb focuses on as the key modality for differentiating between a natural object and the artificial object, which was the anomalous motions of Oumuamua as it left the solar system, which are so non-Newtonian, so non-relativistic, so non any mainstream theory that Loeb and his colleagues created one model which can be easily falsified and I have created based on the physics that I learned in the geometry of Sidonia a totally other model which can be tested and when I get Loeb on the show which we will do I'm going to propose that he with the resources of Harvard College can in fact in the lab demonstrate the physics and attach it to Oumuamua's anomalous motions. And so the revolution is not going to be decades away or maybe even a decade away. Richard, you and I are going to, in the next three or four years, see a stunning confirmation of a whole bunch of outrageous things that I have said. Okay. Well, my point was that it didn't matter. That what was See, and I can't understand how you as a scientist can say it doesn't matter unless you're approaching this purely as an intellectual, metaphysical, esotericist uh, guy who 
what's one of the reasons why I kind of, you know, like what you write because you think outside the box like I do. Well, I I I don't identify myself as a scientist. I mean, I, I find science interesting, but not the most interesting thing. And um, I, um, I, I always liked a line that my philosopher friend from years ago, Andy Lugg, said, which was, he commented on my using science in my writing. He said... Um, he said, science interests you. It doesn't interest me. I figure things have to work somehow, and it and, and I could care less how they do. Mm. And I'm sort of, from a material standpoint, that's sort of where I am too. I think everything you say is in some ways much more interesting than you think it is because you think it's interesting if it can be proven. And I... I don't think it. I don't think it can or will be proven. Um, and I. Oh, I could and, make a lot of money on this one. <laughs> with, with who? And the I Enterprise Mission Oumu, could use it. I think Oumuamua is really interesting. It was kind of though a whole separate topic. I think that's one of the things that's hard about the dialogue is that we have you know, like 11 separate topics going at the same time. And um, you could tie them all together. Well, that was another thing I was actually going to credit you with. Um, you, you were very prescient and precocious in opening. This is a very subtle point and hard to make, so I don't even know if I'm going to pull this off. You were very um, prescient in seeing that science in that that it's not just mars or nasa or for that matter the covid or wuhan or whatever it's that the entire scientific paradigm is shot through with flaws with political overlays and with um professional um goals that are put ahead of the actual science, whatever that is. You read that and demonstrated it in terms of Sidonia 35 years ago. And in doing that, you set, uh, you, you set kind of the template for um, ensuing generations to find the same sorts of pileups conspiratorial, quasi-political um, sort of mishmashes created by scientists who I think some are well-intentioned, some are think they're well-intentioned but are actually pro professionally or politically motivated. Others are probably not well-intentioned. But you read all that at a time when people actually believed that, that science was uh, an honest broker. And that was the second thing you did. You, you, um, you opened it up. God knows it's, it's going crazy now hmm. to the extent that um, people are, I think people believe that you can pretty much make anything up and get it to, get it to fly, which is a whole other thing. 
Um, and I would go back to your original monuments of Mars and point out that um, how to say this so it's not going to sound insulting to you. Um, <laughs> when there's a certain way in which your proposal of Sidonia was like the forerunner of QAnon, um, not in the sense of a manipulated conspiracy theory, but in the sense of a populist response to um, being fed um, scientific information that had as its ultimate purpose uh, kind, of, kind of enforcing power dynamics rather than pure empirical analysis. I don't know if I kind of got that right the way I want to. I guess in a simpler sense, what I want to say is that, um, and this goes back to my original point, which I know you don't like, <laughs> that it doesn't matter if the whole Sidonia thing, as you yourself um, said at the very beginning, turns out to be a pile of rocks, because there's something else there's the creation of a much larger archetypal mythology, which simply rings true. There's the for all the um, for all the fables and conspiracy theories and myths and whatever that you've created, when, even if one doesn't believe them literally, they ring true. And that's where you and I go in very different directions you you think these things will be confirmed and that even it even matters whether they're confirmed or not i don't think they will be confirmed and i also think it doesn't matter because i don't think it's where the rubber meets the road hmm. um, i i don't know who the guy was suddenly talking about uh, agriculture and seeds oh we have this. we have a companion program that's on friday nights called the other side of the news and Kinthea uh, and her colleagues produced that separately from the other side of midnight, and that was a guest that they had on, I think, a couple of uh, Fridays ago, and he represents something called ice farming, or well, I haven't followed it closely, yeah. but obviously he has the you know perspectives that nasty, evil, horrible corporations and governments are going to enslave humankind by forcing us all to eat. Uh, processed stuff grown in vertical farms in, in cities. And one of the things I pride myself on this uh, network I we're doing... That's, that's interesting. Well, I, I want to provide a, a panoply of voices, a diversity of voices, many of whom I do not agree with, but I certainly agree in the, in the First Amendment. So that's why, you know, Kintia can pick the guest she wants to put on, and all I ask is documentation, and people do come up with documentation. So it opens the dialogue. You know, I'm, I'm for opening as opposed to closing options, models, ideas, because we need more out-of-the-box thinking, or the human race really is doomed. I mean, that's one thing I think you, can, you and I can agree on, that if we don't, if we keep doing the same thing we've done, which is the Einstein definition of insanity, we're all going to die. And that's why I think space and the fact that we have an extraordinary suppressed history, when we can prove it, and we're not that far away, in contrary to your perception, I think it will change everything for the simple reason that at the core of every human being, 
I don't care whether they're Chinese or North African or, you know, Maltese or American or whatever, is the, is the need, the desperate need of identity to know who you really are and where you came from. And the whole human race has been snookered with a huge lie about where we came from. And that lie will be turned to dust with the first confirmation, like the whole UFO thing out of the Pentagon, the first confirmation by some mission. It may not be us. It may not be the Chinese. It may be a total pri- It may be Musk himself, because I have a strong suspicion based on, you know, political evidence and media evidence and interviews he's done and tweets he's made that Musk knows everything we know about Mars and then more, and he's not saying a word because it isn't politically time yet. Well, I... Um... I th- I've always been interested in space and planets, and I had a Mars scrapbook as a teenager, and oh, I could go on with stories about my own interest in it, and I've written about it. But I don't, I don't feel that the answer is going to come from outer space, um, or that, um, or that it's nearly as interesting as what's i mean inner space is a really silly way to put it it's a cliche but i think that there and i and i think this about ufo's that that there's more and a kind of interdimensional or transdimensional reality that expands right here you don't even have to go as far as the moon it's embedded in the dimensionality of the earth and the sun. Well, you're talking and, about the hyperdimensional physics model. Well, you are. I'm not. I I wouldn't call it a hyperdimensional physics model. I would, I would just say that that we ourselves are attuned to all sorts of fields and energies and intelligences that we have blocked out. And that's the hyperdimensional physics model. Yes. In um, fact, many times I've said the reason we're in such extremists here, Richard, <clears throat> the physics is broken. It's not the way it should be. And as we get later in the evening, I'm going to bring up some evidence that I want to bounce off you and see what your reaction is. But if the physics under which we are living is broken, either inadvertently or deliberately, then the connection between consciousness and the field and the larger gestalt and the universe itself is not the way it should be. And that's, I think, explains why you have these widely divergent experiences and reports from some people who get it, who feel it, who, who, um, what, what's the, what's the, uh, ah, Heinlein, grok, who grok it, and those that don't, they can't. Right. And the, and, and on that, you know, we more or less agree. Oh my God. He just said it. <laughs> Tell you what, hold it there. We are at the uh, bottom of the hour. Or, no, I, I, are we at the bottom or the top of the hour? No, we're at the top of the hour. Yeah, got to read my clocks correctly here. So hold it there. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Grossinger, who, as you can tell from his uh, out-of-date bio, God, the things he's done recently, <clears throat> is kind of a generalist. And though he holds a degree in anthropology, I guess he doesn't think that anthropology should begin in testable empirical science or maybe he does i don't know 
that's one of the reasons I wanted him on again tonight, because we have so many things going on on the planet, so many divergent strains of developments, of all the stuff that people are trying to figure out as they're trying to survive and to prevail. And we'll get back to all of that when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.